welcome to DevSecOps, and this is episode 14. Hello, guys. How are you? Very good, thank you. Hello. And, and today we also have a guest with us. Hello, Henrik. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm on vacation right now, so just relaxing and spending time with the family. So that's good. Yeah. And we met when you come and helped me at my old workplace, Fairface. And I think Andre also was working then, right? Yeah, we yeah. were co- colleagues, consulting yeah. colleagues with Henrik. And uh, I introduced Henrik to Fair Office, and um, Matthias spent a decent amount of time with Henrik, trying to fix whatever they were doing there. Yeah, yeah. It was a fun uh, time in my life. I mean, both from the work perspective, the travel perspective, and the company perspective. I mean... I got a hotel room in the minus second floor. There's no <laughs> windows. There's nothing. And then I complained it. And the next time I went, I got my own window. But then I had to share the bathroom and the toilet. And I was like, I would rather <laughs> miss the window. Yeah. And I got food poisoning once from the hotel. And it was really, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And we spent a lot of frontline consultant. Yeah, frontline consultant. Tough life yeah. of the consultant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it was great. Uh, yeah, so it was a lot yeah. of traveling to Stockholm, and uh, I got to see. Uh, was it was it called Phil's the burger thing? Yeah, that's right, Phil's burger. Yeah, yeah. that was good. Very greasy burgers. Yeah, yeah, shall we yeah. mention a few things about Henrik because he doesn't seem to be mentioning them by himself. Yeah, so do go ahead, Andre. Henrik is well known for his work on Kubernetes and consulting around Kubernetes. If I'm not mistaken, you started to learn and experiment with Kubernetes more or less from the almost day of release, like in 2015. Yeah, and uh, you and another colleague, Cameron from Wacom Pragma, managed to install Kubernetes and Bare Metal in 2016, where there was almost like no scripts available. So that was a big achievement. And then Henrik uh, went on to uh, enable Atlassian software, Atlassian stack, yeah. to run on Kubernetes, and that got recognized by Atlassian. And as far as I understand, Atlassian is now recommending do it Henrik way <laughs> if, if you want to run Atlassian yeah. stuff on Kubernetes. Yeah, so the the thing we did was uh, with Atlassian, you can do this data center thing where you could have four or five Jiras running as one, and then you can scale up and down. But doing that on bare metal or VMs is very slow. It takes a lot of uh, manual input. So we automated that with a stateful set. And the, the next obvious step would be a operator, of course. Yeah. And uh, we did that. And I, I went to Barcelona and did a talk at uh, Atlassian Summit in 16 and in 18 about the subject. Cool. So that was fun. Nice, it's a good nice way fun. to learn about stateful sets because they are a bit different. I think you should have called it differently, though. Now it's called Ask Atlassian Software on Kubernetes. Yeah, but you should you should have called it Henrik Way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Granjira Henrik Way. Sounds good. Has uh, anybody been working on some uh, stuff since the last time we had a podcast? No, no. We just wait until the podcast comes and then... Yeah, nobody's working, right? No, exactly. (laughs) I'm actually working. I I had like a week of vacation when most of Sweden from Spain. Yeah. So what have you been working on? Busy, busy as hell. All the customer work and uh, also, as, as I mentioned, a couple of podcasts in a row we're doing this summer internship program where we're teaching yeah. people ways of DevOps and what DevOps is, is and what is not and how to do immutable infrastructure and why you shouldn't be learning and uncivil nowadays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you don't start with me like, you don't start me like talking why you shouldn't be learning uncivil. <laughs> we can save that for, for another talk because, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of immutable infrastructure. And immutable infrastructure, yeah. just putting it simply, there is no yeah. way to, there is no need to log into your server because it's already, everything is baked in. It's yeah. already running. It's done. It's like you don't SSH to your Docker containers to install software there. You don't oh. do that. I, I think oh, like Julian does it. I, I, I almost yeah. died hearing that. But yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. people do their best, you know. But we we can have another uh, talk when we talk about when to run Ansible and when not to run Ansible and compare them against other tools out there. I I posted a really nice video by John Willis yeah. with a title. Uh, I have ninety nine problems and uh, Bash DSL isn't one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's see. Uh, I posted it to the, our Gitter. You will, yeah. if anyone interested, you could Google the video directly on YouTube or go to uh, devsecops.fm and there you will have a link to the Gitter where you can find it. You don't need to sign in or anything to browse the text. So it's no login necessary, no tracking, no anything. And there he was talking about generations of the configuration management tools. And uh, like after like describing Puppet and everything like Chef, like you know Ansible, like those big three things, and then he's saying like, well, there are like some few more tools, and I call them citizens of the plateau of plateau of productivity. It's <laughs> 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 like when you productivity plateau, like where you already have a self stack and stuff like that. And they came much later, where like there were like no need for the configuration management tool science. Everyone started. Yeah. Well, the most brave of us, at least, started to embrace uh, immutable infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but sure. derailing us a little bit from the topic. Yeah, and to the topic today should we allow Henrik to lead us into the topic. Yeah, I mean, um, so now you know I know Andre. I met Julian in uh, Barcelona on a rooftop. Uh, yeah, KubeCon. Yeah, yeah, it was a good trip before the corona and everything. So <laughs> yeah, we could the see last other people. KubeCon. Yeah, um, and I also know uh, Matti or Matthias. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Um, yeah, so I've been so I've been working a lot with Kubernetes and cloud native, giving a lot of talks, uh, especially introduction, because I want everyone to get on board. To me, it's very important that people use words correctly. Uh, I am yeah. a bit strange in that way, so uh, but I think I have more or less the same definition of DevOps as you people. Um, but it's something that I struggle with when people use things in a wrong way. Um, but I actually started um, started with Cloud Native, and then I worked my way into DevOps uh, in the company I work with, Andre, and learned a lot about that. And um, my background is a system administrator, so uh, DevOps was really great to me. And then, I mean, I, I read the Phoenix project that I guess everybody here read yeah it's one of the books that is mandatory to read in certain companies because it's a really good book on how to think about flow um and the fun thing about the phoenix project is that it's actually uh, uh it's based on another book from the 80s called the goal by eli goldratt and it's it's basically a remapping or retelling the story, but in an IT setting. So mm-hmm. it's the same structure, the same setup, the same, you know, uh, skeleton, uh, or how do you say, it? the blueprint of the book, more or less, but with an IT perspective. And that book changed my life and my perspective on IT. And I had to dig deeper into this because I found it so interesting. And that's the topic we talk about today called uh, Theory of Constraints and the book The Goal will explain this in a story just like the Phoenix Project did with the three ways. And um, Eli Goldratt um, was um, a consultant that, that helped big companies uh, implement this uh, and, and it, it, it relates to some, some degree to lean but it's a different perspective I think where lean, you do a um, how do you say a value stream mapping, and you try to eliminate eliminate waste here and there, and you try to make it more and more lean, right? Um, whereas theory of constraints is more of a focusing mechanism to figure out where do we need to put our effort to get the most value right now, and. Um, it's called theory of constraints, but in the beginning they didn't use the word constraint. It was uh, bottlenecks, um, but there is a difference um, to bottlenecks and constraints. And um, so, I think everybody knows what a bottleneck is. Uh, you know, one workstation in a series of workstations that can't keep up with the others, but it's slower for some reason. Um, so think things will pile up there. Um, and the, the next workstation will starve. Um, but a constraint is a bit more than that. Uh, you usually only have one constraint, and uh, the constraint is defined as the bottleneck in your system that is the lowest and lower than the customer demand or the demand of the system. So you can have a local bottleneck, but if it's still faster than the demand of the system, like the customer or the next company that you deliver to, then it's not really a big problem. Then it's not a constraint. You can still optimize it, but 
is not a constraint. But if you have a workstation that can do, let's say, four units per second and the customer demands five units um, per second, uh, then it's then it's definitely a constraint. So so and this is why it's a focusing mechanism. So so it's a way of finding these constraints or, or the constraint and then say you need to focus on that. And then he has some mechanisms on doing that. Yeah. Uh, when you're saying workstation, you're meaning workstation like in a QT area, right? You're not meaning a computer. No, not a computer. Like a, a real setup, a workbench, you know, on a factory floor where you yeah. do some work on some units and then you pass them on to the next workstation. So yeah, I just wanted to make yes. it clear because like, you. I, you. I, I, like, I'm thinking like, when he's going to switch to Kubernetes, like it looks like he's not switching to Kubernetes. No. <laughs> and he started to speak about units <laughs> instead of requests per second. Yeah. So it could be pipes, or it could be whatever this factory creates um, or deals with. So then, uh, and it's actually usually quite easy to find this constraint because it's usually where you have the most inventory piling up right before it. And right after the constraint, it's uh, usually starving uh, the next workstation because uh, the next workstation can process the units faster than the constraints can give it, right? So that's the the way of saying, so So let's find the constraint because I think the, the problem many companies have is that it's very easy to do uh, improvements here and there. And people do it where it's easy, usually. Oh, we can improve this. Oh, we can improve this. But if you have a constraint or bottleneck, it doesn't matter how much you improve before the bottleneck or after the bottleneck. The bottleneck will set the pace of the system. So it's basically a waste, more or less. Um, the fun thing in IT, I think, and that's what we also saw in the Phoenix project, is that the constraint in IT is typically, not in the new unicorn companies, but in typically IT companies, it's infrastructure, right? So setting up servers, everybody's waiting for their VMs, everybody. I mean, three months, four months, I've seen worse, even uh, maybe six months sometimes, right? And this needs to be solved first. It doesn't matter how much you improve development, they will just that work will just pile up waiting for a VM. So you need to solve that first. And I think one of the very obvious ways of solving this is uh, cloud, right? So infrastructure as code, on demand, bang, I have a VM, move on, right? Yeah. So, and, and this is the great thing about Kubernetes because they can just add worker nodes. They just need to monitor, say, are we out of resources? Yes and no. Uh, and then add more of the same thing. So yeah. making it easy and fast. And then the constraint usually moves to the next place. And, and this is from the um, DevOps handbook, by the way. Um, um, it usually moves to operations, like the one, the people who deploy stuff. And this is where continuous deployment and integration uh, comes in to help and automate these things, and especially Kubernetes uh, and then when you solve that, it moves to security and test. I mean, there are companies that have cap, and I'm not going to say cap boards, <laughs> um, but um, 
where you have to, if you need to change something, it needs to go to a cap and they need to evaluate it and figure out if this is an okay thing. And, you know, with security and security have usually been a blocker, whereas in DevOps, uh, you build it in, right? So this is one of the ways to come up, go around this. Um, also with testing, automated testing and all that stuff. And then it usually ends up in deployment or development. Yeah. And, um, and then you can actually start saying, okay, let's, let's improve and get some speed on, on deployment or development. And, um, one of the techniques Goldrad developed was this, uh, drum buffer rope, uh, mechanism where he says that you need to find the constraint and the constraint sets the beat or the pace of the system. So everybody, works at the pace of the uh, the drum and then you create a small buffer in front of the constraint so let's say it's an oven well the oven if it's a constraint in a factory it should not be idle because then you're wasting the entire factory's time so you need a a, a buffer here and in IT we use uh, backlogs as a buffer basically right yeah um and then, uh, yeah, and then everybody will follow that uh, paste. Um, and once you do that, then you can start optimizing and then you can start to scale things like, let's say that you remove all the constraints, but development, then you can start scaling your development um, because the rest of the, the value stream will be able to take it. Until then, you're just creating more waste. And this is also why I wrote on LinkedIn that if you have a really huge backlog, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. you're just swamping things, right? So now you found your your um, constraint. I actually worked at a company once that had a team with a backlog of three years. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a lot. That sounds like waterfall. Yeah. So. That was that. That was definitely a constraint, right? Very easy to spot. Yeah. And until they've solved that, nothing's going to change. No. Yeah. Interesting. So, what you're saying from... that you are moving from? Are you moving from Kubernetes consulting to the organization optimization? No, I mean, I think everybody have this gut feeling that we need to automate infrastructure and deployment and, uh, you know, test and security and all these things. But I don't think anybody could really pinpoint, like, with this accuracy, why it's important and, mm -hmm. and have this almost culture around it, why. Uh, I really like cloud native. I... I still hate that people don't know what it means. Uh, I mean, we got a fresh start. I mean, we, we messed up DevOps and now we came up with this new name and we messed it up from day one. I mean, people are, I think people look at words, read it and then say, I think what this means. And then they start talking about it, right? DevOps put together. I know what DevOps is. And I think the same goes for cloud native. If you're running in Kubernetes, you're cloud native. That's what people say. Yeah, the ops is the same. Yeah. So, so, so keep doing but, the same thing. Yeah, but what, what does it mean then, Henrik? 
DevOps and Cloud Native. What does it mean? So I have, uh, so I'm going to spoil my next talk, but um, yeah. I have this quiz where I ask, what is Cloud Native? Approach to, um, how do you say, connect to another service in Kubernetes. So is it uh, connecting to the internal DNS that gets routed to endpoints? Is it uh, connecting to the service IP that gets routed to the endpoints? Is it connecting directly to the pods IP or none of the above? And it's actually none of the above. I mean, using DNS is not anything new. I mean, it's not cloud native. Cube system, no, uh, sorry, um, uh, Cube proxy implements these services and it is implemented in a cloud native way. If you look in the service um, documentation, they actually write, if you want to connect to another service in a cloud-native way, you ask the API server. You are cloud-native when you talk to the cloud, right? Uh, if you use a DNS, then you are using the old way of doing those things. And they added this to, to how do you say, abstract it away. So it made it easier to, for you to do a lift and shift. If you look at operators, they don't, I mean, they don't use something like DNS. They, they talk and listen to the API server and they react. That's the cloud native way of doing stuff. So, yeah. That was a really good uh, description. And um, and the problem is, if you go to Cloud Native uh, Foundation and read their um, description, it actually doesn't tell you what Cloud Native is. It just tells you, if you're doing Cloud Native, you'll get these things easier. And things that does this gives you this and this and this. And it never tells you exactly what Cloud Native is. Yeah. And I found that a bit strange. But I, I'm, I have a talk, uh, Something's Rotten in IT, that uh, will cover <laughs> these things. <laughs> it's it's my grumpy man yelling at the clouds talk. Yeah, yes. yeah. we have, we have some of those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the one with Andre. Yeah, Henrik, if, if, you, if you if you need a co-presenter for the talk, yes. I yeah. think Julian is up for the graph. So he's doing yeah. it. Did you go there? I, I, I never want to be recorded when I rant. They they tricked me into doing an episode of the same way. That was the only one. There won't be another one. Oh, yeah. It will be. It will you be. can do a conference talk, right? A meetup talk that is not recorded. Yeah, but hate-driven talk is actually not very good. <laughs> but I think it sometimes sometimes it's actually good to have these uh, why Linux sucks talks, right? If you remember yeah. the guy who did these, and it was not because he hated Linux; he actually really liked Linux. But there were some things that just didn't work, and let's be honest about it, so we can talk about it and fix it. Yeah. And sure. I think the same here. So I but, won't. Yeah. Really, yeah. There is also a part of the. I mean, if you if you are not. Uh, IT-centric company. Let's let's take an example: a big retail store, or you know, like your your product is not IT. Like you, what you're selling is has nothing to do with IT. It's really hard for the management to say should we go cloud native or not. You know, something like so. If they see oh, cloud native is a new thing, and 
they look, look at the marketing brochure and see, wow, this is what we get if we go cloud native. Of course, they feel cloud native is really good. And let's find a consultancy firm that sells DevOps in a box. You know, like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to buy DevOps. Please put the DevOps, bo- DevOps box there next to our server. I'll, <laughs> so, I'll have two. exactly and please please uh, you know i I want also security in the box oh and what we are i want want developer in the box as well and you know like patch things and Mm. it's really hard to get into the feedback mentality like okay this is actually your product your website is what brings in the money if people cannot order especially if there is a pandemic well you kind of have difficulty to sell stuff. So I think the the, the mentality is changing a little bit because now they, it's like a, the knife is under their throat. You understand? Like this is a necessity. It's it's yeah. evolve or die, like Darwinism. Yeah. Yes. Enough enough of companies are succeeding for them to, to die if they don't, I think. Mm. But I think uh, theory of constraint is a very good uh, argument for Kubernetes and cloud native or cloud uh, in general, because it's like very reasonable. The, the funny thing is, I've been to companies that do production and then have to get help with IT, and I mean, they know this stuff. They they've been doing this for many many years. I talked to a big company in Denmark that makes pumps. And we started talking about microservices and they were like, dude, we've been doing this for 15 years. We just call it something else. We call it components in our pumps, right? Yeah. And in printers and stuff like that. We know this. And, and, and all these principles about that stems from production, they know that because otherwise they won't, they, they weren't there anymore, yeah. right? So, and I, I find it very, interesting to to learn as much because everything we basically do in it stems from production like if you take um uh, kanban right if you ask 10 people where do kanban we use in it you know the kanban board and all that stuff where do that come from they'll say lean and the fun thing is it actually it, it doesn't <laughs> Um, the Kanban notion, you know, the sticker uh, stems from Lean, but the the Kanban system or the methodology is actually created by David, uh, what was his name? Uh, I think I have him. Yeah, David Anderson. Um, And uh, inspired heavily by Theory of Constraints, Lean, so yeah, but and and I in, think you should have like a, a work in progress on your backlog. I mean, why why would you want it to keep growing? Why not say you can't create a new issue before we've dealt with one of them? I mean, it could be twenty or thirty, but some some limit to the backlog. Um, okay, so you say that you should. I've seen large backlogs as well and what you do when they start growing sometimes they're really big some people say you delete them all you just throw it away yeah, i know that guy <laughs> yeah you know that guy yeah. yeah and you say maybe keep but should you keep like a limit say that you have like 30 yeah i mean if you put a limit yeah. then it'll yeah. it'll never grow out of control and then when people yeah. say well this is very very important well yeah. yeah but this is more important 
Otherwise, it yeah. wouldn't be there. Yeah. And if it's not important, then remove it. Then it will make room for the stuff that you need done. But don't you set up like I mean, a new post-it note system? Then when you put up like, oh, this should be nice to have in a backlog someplace else. So why yeah, I mean, is so, so then you have two backlogs. One like pre-backlog when you put in like mm. IDs, and then you have the backlog, and then it's like. Yeah. So I think, uh, th- and this is where agile uh, benefits uh, the IT business. Like, um, so so the workstation before developers, you know, the business. Yeah. Uh, they they work on an epic level usually. Yeah. And they should just simply stop breaking things down into atoms before the next workstation. The developers are ready to deal with it. I mean, and if and I've seen companies oh. that have like fifty epics, and they've broken it down to you know like a million pieces, and then tell developers, "You just take them one at a time or in this order or whatever," and that's really not agile. Oh. I mean, agile is about being able to make decisions as late as possible. I mean, how would yeah. you do that if everything is set in stone already? Right? Yeah, so. I think people are misusing these terms. Yeah, I like a perspective. Yeah. And uh, what would you say is the most important, um, I don't know the name of it, but um, the most important aspect of uh, Agile? Like, is it stand-up? Is it retrospective? Is it... I think to me, and, and and this is also part of my uh, my talk, the rotten talk. Uh, I think the most important thing about Agile is to read the manifest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's a good start. I mean, I will in my talk ask people how many of you are Agile. Raise your hands, and then I'll click, and it'll put add a link to the manifest, and then I'll say, if you read this, you can keep him up. Otherwise, please. Take them down. If you haven't read it, how can you say you're agile? I mean, if you don't know the values, and I think the values are the most important to me, if you had to choose. Um, And I also think that, I mean, it's a good idea to read the manifest, understand it. And I've done that at companies where I've had these workshops where they're like, uh, when I ask, are you agile? Yes. Have you read the manifest? And they haven't. And then I say, let's do it together. And then we do that. Because then we get that sorted out. And then we talk about it. Um, And I think it's a very healthy thing to do. Um, I'm not saying that you need to follow every single step of it. I think it's a very good idea to understand it and, and see how can we do this because I also want people to adjust and, and get better. So if there's something in the Agile Manifest that is actually not optimal for them, then they shouldn't do it. Um, I, I would yeah. say that reading Agile Manifest is great, but it um, might not be helpful for mm. u- universally. It's not science. enough. <laughs> well, yeah. Obviously, like just doing agile rituals without understanding why why are they are there is like not helping. But what I I wanted to say is 
in order to understand what the principles, like those principles says, you actually need to have a decent experience in the industry and you need to face the problems because those principles, they came as a result of the pain going through the certain problems of the industry mm. and, and their declaration of how you deal with that pain or like yeah. proposal how you deal with that pain without feeling going through that pains without seeing that pains reading them doesn't convey the message that they hold you just read them as a text and they say like oh, fine okay yeah. you you kind of you, you're missing the part of the picture and I, I saw that all over again when talking to people and I would start to explain I, I would go through like through every principle start to explain it in a, on a bigger picture like explaining why it's in here and what's came why, why it came about right what does it mean and then people say like yeah well we didn't realize this hmm. and there is a quite a room for interpretation as well yeah. so I generally agree that yeah reading the manifest helps but I would love to have um, expanded version, you know, mm. which says like this principle is that it came out of this, you know, like yeah. the Martin yeah. Fowler way where he says like, that's a world I came up with like a snowflake server. And then he writes the whole article about what the snowflake server is, what is the problem, why he called it this way, what is the alternative and so on and so on. So, I, I think this is a little bit missing in the manifest because, well, manifest itself is like, it's like very high level and you really need to have a background to get it through and understand what it means. And the principles are more elaborate, but still I would love to have like a third level of detailedness, right. of more details and explanation for people who are, you know, like coming from the university and they have not been through those experiences in IT or working in the big organizations or looking or seeing those projects that fail. So it's easier for them to digest it and take in and don't repeat mistakes. Like, you know, those uh, people in the Stone Age, they would draw on a rock, like, don't go that place, Tiger gonna get you. <laughs> we need to digest the Agile Manifest to the same level. Right yeah. now, if you read it, you, you don't get the picture about the tiger eating you like you like there is a danger mm. danger but yeah. where the danger is i don't it's know if i'm doing a good analogy here yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean experiencing experience is is key and and i think and this is also where one of the things i've been looking into is um uh, you know uh, dr deming um who developed uh, kaisan this continuous improvement in, in culture as well uh, not just in the processes and and this and yeah i've worked with companies where they they call themselves devops but don't really do it but other than automation and and they have to learn all these things and i actually like those because it gives me an opportunity to also learn how to teach um and and you get surprised every time i mean it's not like there's a one size fits all in any way, and right now I'm learning. Uh, I'm at a company where they use uh, Safe, for instance. I'm trying to figure out what that is, and there's some really good parts in it, like PI planning and stuff. There's also, I mean, it's a top-down system, and I don't really know and how Safe to... it's a scaled agile framework for yes yeah. people who haven't heard about it. 
yeah like this is this is the thing that you want to stay away from yeah i mean i think i I talked to companies who implemented it and some companies say that the 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 good teams the very good teams got better or worse but the very bad teams actually got better Mm. so it's like forcing a certain level of um, structure and throughput right and then i think the main the 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 very important thing here is to not just say, okay, now we have safe, now we do it like this, because that would be the same as adopting the um, Spotify model, right? Mm. So so it, if you really can't figure this out yourself, then I think maybe safe could be a good way of getting started and then say, how do we develop it from here? What pieces can we use? Which one do we not like? And then simply throw them away and and don't care if it's not safe, and find to de- decrypt the reference to the Spotify model that yeah. Henrik gave. So like, I, I will be decrypting what Henrik is saying. The reference to Spotify model means like don't adapt Spotify model because the Spotify model, like the video you saw on YouTube, was done as inspirational and it never truly worked in Spotify and. And people who actually produce those videos said, like, yeah, the model wasn't really something that we would recommend. And you really need to be in a position where Spotify was to think about those principles. So, like, it's don't take something that you don't know why why it was this way, mm-hmm. and uh, and without understanding your own problem. So you have to understand what your problem is, and then th- see what problem what people did who had the same problem as you had. Not just saying like no, we're just gonna call our teams like squads and tribes and whatever. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't work. Just no. you know, it's that's a cargo cult. And the, yeah, and it goes way back to lean and, and you know when when they say how many times do you pull the end on cord and they say fifteen hundred times, mm. and and they say isn't that a problem? No, we actually found it a problem that we only did it fifteen hundred times. But every fifteen hundred time was an opportunity to learn. And it made us better. But if you're taking other people's learning, then you didn't really learn anything. And um, yeah, so I I think it's important, like um, they say about Lean, that uh, it's about creating an army of scientists, basically, at least in culture, wanting to learn and make things better and make hypotheses and try things out and see what works. And if it works, then start doing that. Hmm. Um, yeah, I really like the. So I don't read books. I I I have audiobooks. Hmm. I have this condition called aphantasia. So books are not really interesting to me. But if someone else read it, then I can do it. Um, and I really like the um, Beyond the Phoenix Project because there they actually talk about all these things like uh, Deming. Uh, um, uh, you know uh, Eli Goldratt and uh, uh, what's his name uh, uh, Taichi Ono and you know the people behind these things and, and the, the talk I'm working on right now is called uh, The Shoulders of Giants where I actually go through Deming, Ono and Goldratt and how that the, the work of the knowledge they build up helps us today and how it relates to IT so. That's very interesting. Um, or, or, 
everything that you said about the organization, but it seemed very centric to engineering. And correct me if I'm wrong. Like uh, I, I also find that um, some other parts, some other department, let's say sales or finance, they also suffer from some kind of um, organization blockage. Like I don't know if you've ever been into uh, the end of the year accounting uh, in the finance department. Like this is madness. My wife is an accountant, so <laughs> I don't. There are certain times a year where I don't see her. <laughs> <laughs> I find that uh, actually finance seems like a pretty important part of the company, and it seems like it's the most stressful part, and. Could we not apply some of those techniques for, let's say, developer being able to make a decision to buy a service instead of having to develop themselves and being okay with finance and make that process, like involve finance into the development process as well? Because the build or buy uh, decision might not be, you know, it might not always be easy to make since we don't know how long something is going to take to build ourselves. I think accounting is so we in IT we talk about getting to the point where we are data driven, right? Mm. And they actually step further than that. They're money driven (laughs) in accounting. Mm. I mean, if you're not making money, you you're out the door. I mean, they're very fast to throw out what doesn't work and what works because they're very focused on money. And um, I mean. I heard stories about accounting companies, one of the big ones, where they each year would look at the 14 worst performing accounting, uh, you know, people, and then they would just fire them and plant 14 new ones to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's, uh, <laughs> I don't think we're ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully um, that will not come to developer. No, and it, it goes very much against everything Deming uh, talked about right and um, yeah so but I, I think it's about um, I mean right now there's small companies flying forward as um, unicorns because they're doing the right stuff right right now there's a lot of fintech uh, like online banks and all that stuff they're crushing the old banks and they have to do something right They've been sitting still for many years and doing basically no innovation and they didn't have to, mm. but now they're threatened. Now they need to do something. And and I think, you know, the selection became um, important enough for them to actually do something if we talk. Mm. So, um, yeah, but I, th- I think these things are important and, and, you know, um, and and I know that it doesn't map one-to-one to the very simple examples of, you know, one workstation delivers to the next one and so on. But I think the, the problem is that in many traditional comp- IT companies, the IT or infrastructure department is usually the one that gets hammered with uh, with tasks and backlogs and, and they can't keep up because it's not just one development team they have to service. It's like 20. Mm. And... Um, yeah. If you've been in a that. big company, um, I, I've been in a few meetings where they ask me to be present because we're gonna we ask uh, one of the 
big provider to provide a service. And in during the meeting, they tell us, oh, you're already customer. We have two credit cards from your company already in our service. And it's the same where you talk to some C-level executive and they say, oh, we're not in the cloud. And then finally, when you have a <laughs> meeting with one of the cloud providers, they say, oh, actually, you already have five teams with a credit card. And because the, those credit cards are split, they don't recount into the same account. And so no, nobody in the finance or above the the management the, the see really what's going on but they are already running all the pipelines and everything in the cloud and th- that's also uh, one of the main aspects i saw you talk a bit about a site reliability engineer a subject that is dear to my heart on linkedin mm-hmm. uh, so so if you uh, comment on that um, do you have any view on how site reliability engineering could help with the Finance, because it's also not only availability, it's, uh, you also have a service level agreement where money is involved. And it's not only cost optimization, but it's like there is a financial aspect to the technology now that, is, that was not present um, years ago. Do you have any comment on that? So I, um, I want to be very honest. I haven't read the book. Um, and I also usually challenge people when they say they're on SRE asking, have you read the book? Because again, it's like dev ops put together <laughs> site reliability. Yeah, I'm reliable, you know? <laughs> um, so I would rather say, I, I actually don't know much about SRE, but I think to me, it sounds like a professional approach to what you just said, mm. you know, SRE. Uh, doing budgets and all these things, error budgets, all that stuff. It's a very professional approach to it. So I'm all for it. It's just that there are a lot of companies that's not really ready for that yet. I mean, uh, I usually, I mean, when you go to an IT department and say, I need a VM, and they say, yeah, you'll get in three months. I'm like, why, why in three months? I, we have to get some new hardware home and install it. And I usually ask, so if I want a VM in AWS, I mean, what, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think they, that they'll say, well, you can have it in three months. We just need to buy some hardware. No, <laughs> it doesn't work like that, right? So I think that's the, the problem I'm very focused on right now, trying to help uh, them seeing that infrastructure needs, needs to be automated. And, and that's where I can tie this DevOps and theory of constraints and lean and all that with cloud native that I really like. Like, um, and that, that's how I also came up with Ask. Uh, like, I, I had these two things that I liked. I liked Atlassian products and I liked cloud native, so I joined them. So I'm trying to do the same here, help them. But I think finance is something I. I leave to my wife. <laughs> she's just much better. She's a professional. Henrik, you know what? We are getting close to the one hour, and we're usually trying yeah. to cut off there. But mm-hmm. uh, you're bringing a really interesting perspective. And uh, to close it up, I, I got to ask something. Yeah. We've been known to be talking bad things about Kubernetes a couple of episodes back. 
and um, saying like, why would you do Kubernetes? Why don't you do a nomad, which is easier? <laughs> what is your take on all of that? Like the orchestrators. I know you worked a lot with uh, Kubernetes, but what would you recommend? I think in the beginning there were like uh, there was like uh, Mesos and there was Kubernetes uh, with a very hard guide to follow, and there was Swarm. And I didn't really get to know Nomad. I mean, I've never tried it. I've never really experiencing it. Um, I think the war was very focused on those three. Uh, and I think the the area where Mesos have an advantage is shrinking, like uh, Spark jobs and all that stuff. Um, so, and And also I think... I mean, Kubernetes is getting easier and easier. It's not like you have to install it via a hard guide the hard way anymore. You can just click a button and then you have it. Um, I think Kubernetes will disappear, um, like, you know, from from people's conscience. Uh, you know, you don't really talk about Kubernetes uh, in five years. Uh, it'll just be like nobody talks about the Linux kernel. Uh, I think it's about what will be built on top of it. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if something could be built on top of Kubernetes that would emulate uh, Nomad. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that where you could just shift so that you could just run Nomad wherever you want, or you know, uh, uh, what's it called? They have this uh, serverless framework Google that uses uh, like Knative. Yeah, key native, right? Yeah. So, so if you do that, you don't really see Kubernetes underneath. Uh, is it Cloud Run or what is it called? Where they use it underneath? Istio. No. And they have this service where you basically use key native, and then you just you don't see Kubernetes underneath. It's just you know, yeah, yeah. and then yeah. I I don't like Istio. Just by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned it. I don't know why people would go that route. I mean, f inflicting pain on yourself. I don't know. I don't understand that. Uh, the hype of yeah. yeah, I mean, I like uh, LinkedD. It works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I saw companies using Istio in production for sick people. I mean, two years ago or something like that. Alpha features. Yeah. That was impressive. Yeah, I, I think there is a. Um, I, I get a lot of questions about Istio, like, oh, you know, the, the typical, does it scale? And I mean, like, if you have to ask this, that question, it's already, like, not for you, I would say, because the, the complexity it brings and the control it brings is also something that's not meant for everyone. Mm. Like I, I think I really like the approach of LinkedD because they made it so simple to install, so so uh, non-intrusive. You know, like you know what you're getting. It's like a toggles a little bit here and there with with Istio. It's more like how do you architect your network so that you know, like thousands of developers can hammer your cluster at the same time and not not everything blew up. So it's more like uh, well. It's not for small players, I would say. No. no. And, and I mean, that's I, where... I usually ask people or tell people that I would really want a 3D printer. I mean, I, I would 
give everything to get one of those. They're so awesome. The problem is that the 3D printer is the solution and I haven't really found the problem yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I ask people, what problem does Istio solve for you? And if you have one that is solved, then fine, let's talk about it. But if you can't pinpoint it, because I've been to companies where they say, well, then I can do tracing and all, and I can do uh, SSL and, you know, mm. mutual TLS. Yeah. But is that your problem right now? Mm. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I was at this company and they said, we want to start up this new project and we want this and we want this. We want microservices. We want ISTO and we want this and we want this. And I was like, sorry, what? ISTO. Oh, you mean Istio? Yes. Then you're not going to get it. I'm sorry. I mean, that's, (laughs) it's not, it's, it'll fail from the, beginning i mean it takes so much discipline and exp- i mean and microservices is the same thing right you don't just do event driven microservices right i mean mm-hmm. well he thought we could and i asked him so how do you take a backup of uh, your microservice architecture you have a distributed uh, database of every microservice and everything how do you take a backup a consistent backup he didn't know okay shouldn't we wait until you know that i mean <laughs> Taking a backup is kind of important. So I can be a showstopper sometime uh, because I ask these questions. uh, I want people to to succeed. And uh, that's not always popular. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much easier to be a yes man and say, yes, I'll build it for you. And you know what? In six months, I'm gone. And you're going to have to deal with all that complexity yourself. Are you ready for that? I think the only time where I experienced that being a no man was hard was actually when I met uh, Matthias because they've been working on a project for three months. And my first day... It was longer. (laughs) Was it longer? longer? Yeah, I think it was uh, over six months maybe. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, the first sorry. thing I had to do was to get up in front of the team and say, I think it's great. It's just we're not going to use it, so we have to throw it away. And that's very quiet in the room. I mean, you could hear the people on the next building talking. <laughs> right? But and, I was on um, your side, right? Yeah, we actually spent the night there. I mean, yeah. and, uh, I was hired as a consultant, and uh, I didn't build the hours, but we actually s- – stayed to eight or nine o'clock in the night, I think. And uh, next yeah. day we could actually do more than the thing they built it for yeah. three to six months. Yeah. That was fun, but it took it some time and it was. explaining CICD was also hard. Uh, but but, uh, but isn't that one of the, the topics that you come to that what I experienced as well? It's like, I know IT, but changing people is, is much harder yeah. than yes. the cluster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's about, it's about aligning uh, learning and, uh, and goals. And, you know, there are people saying, but then we can't do this. No, but yeah. can you do it now? No. Yeah. Mm. Well, <laughs> okay, let's yeah. move on. Yeah. Um, but, but it is hard. I mean, when I first started in the company where Andre worked as well, um, before that, I worked at a company where we delivered every three or four months. 
And then the boss of this company where we worked said that you need to do continuous integration and delivery. You should push to production every day. I was like, what an idiot. I mean, (laughs) I couldn't understand a word he said. I mean, how could you do that, right? But it takes time to understand how to break things down and start doing things a bit smarter and being able to do this. And there's a lot of benefits in it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is hard. Yeah, you have this yeah. curve of resistance, right? So you just first in denial, yeah. you sad, yeah. and you start to accept, and then you join the party. Yeah. yeah. I make a lot of people sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's my job. I think we're, I think we're getting up to, to time. Do you have any last words for, for ending? It's been great talking to you people again and seeing you again. It's been really awesome. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for coming. I'm really looking forward to your rotten talk. <laughs> where, where people can see the talk? Uh, so it'll be at a, the next time. The first time will be at a New Day, a company in Denmark. Uh, I think it's a TDC company, something like that. Um, and I'm not sure it will be recorded. And if it will, I'll probably ask them to not do it because, uh, you know. Yeah, the first time. Yeah, I just need to see the reaction of people. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and then the other talk, Shoulders of Giants, I think I'll take in small steps. I think I'll go directly to companies first and talk to them about Mm. it. But no conferences planned yet, right? No, everything is online and... Yeah. And uh, I mean, KubeCon is like winning the lottery, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did I did talk at KubeCon in Berlin, but back then it was much easier yeah. to get picked. Okay. And I think with that, I would say uh, thank you for listening and uh, stay tuned for more episodes, right? And where can you find the info, Andre? You go to the devsecops.fm and there yeah. we will have a separate link for every episode. You click on that link and you get the, all the show notes and additional information. I guess Henrik will send us some links that we could <laughs> post there. Like listens to the books and stuff like that. So you will be able to find you, you will be able to find it there. And also on the homepage, you will have a link to Gitter, where you could chat with me, Matthias, Julian, and even Henrik. Yeah. Come over and say hello. <laughs> Don't be a stranger. Okay. And then uh, goodbye and thank you for listening. You have been listening to the DevSecOps podcast with Matthias, Andre, and Julian. For more podcast and notes, go to the webpage devsecops.fm. Thanks for tuning in.